you don't have to worry too much about watering your garden. But if we're in a drought situation like now, then you have to make sure that you're going to water your garden. And if your garden is close to the house, you can probably do that with a hose that you can plug into the side of the house. But now, this is what I was going to say. If your garden is too far away from your house for the hose to reach, what do you have to do? Well, you have to get a bucket and fill the bucket with water. And then you have to carry the bucket over to the garden so that you can then water your plants and your flowers and vegetables and whatever you have. And if you've ever done that, if you've ever had that experience of having to carry water in a bucket to another place and then dump it, then you have an idea what the preparation and delivery of sermons is like. After I was here two weeks ago, uh, they asked me to come back and and speak again next Sunday, uh, as they said at the time. And so I went home and I started preparing a sermon. And uh, it was like filling a bucket full of water. And by Saturday night, my bucket was full, my sermon was ready, and I wanted to go carry it over to the church and dump it. But church was canceled because of the bad weather. And I've been standing here holding that bucket ever since. (laughs) And it's getting heavy. I need to dump it. So here comes the sermon that, according to your bulletin, was to have been preached on Sunday morning, January 20th. It's last week at Newlands Grove Advent Christian Church, and it's called How God Overcame Paul's Prejudice. Prejudice is a touchy subject. And my wife said, after you preach this sermon, they'll probably never invite you back again. (laughs) So I said, well... In that case, I won't have to tote buckets all the way down to Charlotte. (laughs) First of all, let's make a definition of terms. What is prejudice? What do I mean by prejudice? And I'm just going to break the word down into its simple components, pre and Judas. Pre means before, and Judas is related to the word judge or um, judgmental or anything like that. Uh, Pre-Judas, prejudice is to judge something, to evaluate it, to figure out what it is before, that's what pre means, before you have the facts. We would consider it to be very improper and wrong for a professional judge wearing a black robe and maybe a wig to sit behind the bench and the moment the defendant walks into the courtroom to say, I pronounce sentence. That would be wrong. The judge needs to hear all the facts of the case first. And then after he's heard the facts of the case, then it's right and proper for him to pronounce his sentence, guilty or innocent or whatever the punishment ought to be. But that wouldn't be prejudice. That would be post-judish. Or something like that. Pick up a word here. Judging after you've heard the facts. Prejudice is when you judge before you have the facts. Prejudice is when the moment you're introduced to somebody, you select one item that you know about that person. And on the basis of that one little fact, you decide that you know everything else there is to know about them. And you can just fill in the blanks. And so prejudice can be in favor of somebody, 
You can decide ahead of time that you like them because of that one fact that you have. Or prejudice can be against somebody that you decide ahead of time that you don't like them because of that one fact that you have and the assumption that follows from it that because you have that one fact, you think you can collect all the others. That's what prejudice is. And I'll have to say at the same time that it's very natural to human beings to behave that way. And it's also very sinful for human beings to behave that way. And there's nothing contradictory about the fact that it's natural and that it's sinful because we human beings come into this world with a sinful nature. And so what's sinful for us is natural to us. And what's natural for us is sinful to us. And prejudice is one of those things that's part of a sinful nature. I believe that everybody's prejudiced. Everybody has a tendency to judge other people before they have all the facts of the case based on the little bit of information that they might start out with. Everybody's prejudiced in favor of some people or groups of people and everybody's prejudiced against other people or groups of people. When I was growing up in New York City in the 1950s, I know I'm really old, Some people are prejudiced against old people. Some people are prejudiced in favor of old people. At that time, the topic of racial prejudice was big on everybody's minds in the city. And there were posters that you could see in the subways and on the walls of buildings about how wrong it was to be prejudiced against people because of their racial or ethnic identity. I didn't particularly have a problem with that. I wasn't prejudiced against black people. I wasn't prejudiced against Jewish people. I wasn't prejudiced against Italian people. After all, 90% of the kids in my school were either black or Jewish or Italian. I was the one that was in the minority group because I wasn't any of those three things. So I wasn't prejudiced either for or against people on the basis of their racial or ethnic identity because I grew up in an environment where differences amongst people on that kind of basis were very common. And so it wasn't for a very, very long time. After I'd become a Christian, in fact, after I'd graduated from Bible college, in fact, when I was in seminary, in fact, studying to be a minister, although I already was one, (laughs) that I actually had an opportunity to take a test. And the test was designed to reveal to ourselves what prejudices we had. And I found out how badly prejudiced I was against some people because of just one little fact about them. Usually when you're prejudiced against somebody because of a little fact, you're capable of justifying that to yourself in your own minds. Oh, no, it's not prejudice. It just makes sense. It's just logical. I discovered I was prejudiced against people who were blind. Well, it's, it's perfectly logical. How can I write a letter to somebody if they're blind? They can't read it. I was prejudiced against people who were deaf. It's perfectly logical. 
How can I call a deaf person on the telephone? They can't hear me. I was prejudiced against people who were paralyzed, who had to be confined to wheelchairs. Well, how can I go mountain climbing with my friend if he's in a wheelchair? That doesn't make any sense. So I just ignored all those people. And the moment I would spot somebody and recognize that they were blind, I would assume they couldn't do certain things, and so I wouldn't bother with them. If I saw that somebody was deaf, they knew they couldn't do certain things, I wouldn't bother with them. saw that they were handicapped or uh, physically or mentally, I'd just ignore them. Look the other way. There's plenty of other people in the world. I'll relate to those other people. And so although I was a pastor and I was devoted to evangelism and I preached the message that Harold Aldridge preached here a few weeks ago, go out into the world and make disciples of all the people groups. I I, I wasn't here, but I assume that Harold may have explained to you what the word nations meant. Make disciples of all the different groups of people. There were several different groups of people that I wasn't making any disciples of because I was ignoring those people altogether and concentrating my efforts somewhere else. Hopefully we have enough time before this message is over, before I tell you how the Lord cured me of that. And so before you're too prejudiced against me for having been prejudiced, let me say that God worked some things in my life and I no longer overlook people because of the things that caused me to overlook them at that time. And I learned some things. I hope to bring that back in toward the end of the message. But in the meantime, I want to put myself in great company by saying that the writer of half the books in the New Testament, our Apostle Paul, was prejudiced. He was born and raised in a prejudicial environment, and there were people he didn't like and overlooked and avoided based on just one little fact that he knew about them and based on the training that he had growing up in the the community in which he lived. How do I know that? Well, of course, I know it by a very prejudiced method. I know one little fact about Paul, and that one little fact tells me how prejudiced he was and against whom. Now you can see how this thing functions, can't you? Paul was a Pharisee. When we first meet him, he's a Pharisee who is very much opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he stands by and approves as the martyr Stephen is stoned for preaching the gospel. And we look at that and we say, yep, that's what Pharisees do. We've been reading about Pharisees all through the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we know all about the Pharisees. They're bad people. They would, they would do that. And it surprised me when I discovered much later in the story, in Acts chapter 23, in verse 6 to be exact, that at the end of his life, after he'd been on a worldwide mission to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul stood before the Jewish council and took a look around at who was about to judge him and made this statement. I am a Pharisee. He didn't say I was a Pharisee. He said I am a Pharisee. He was still a Pharisee after 25 years of gospel ministry. Now, this is where I said that I knew something about him based on prejudice, because I know something about Pharisees, a a little tiny factoid. 
I know that Pharisees were taught to pray this prayer every day when they woke up. First thing out of bed in the morning. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. I thank you that you have not made me a Gentile. What's a Gentile? It's anybody who isn't Jewish. In his roundabout way, the Pharisee is trying to thank God that he has blessed him for allowing him to be born into a Jewish family and brought up in the Jewish community. And he feels good about the fact that he's Jewish. And because he feels good about the fact that he's Jewish, he would feel so bad if he weren't Jewish that he thanks God that he wasn't born and raised a Gentile like all of us here today were. Oh, and the prayer goes on. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe. I thank thee that thou hast not made me a slave. Because slaves were at the lowest level of society and they were not given any advantages and they had no education and they, they couldn't even support themselves, but they had to work hard all day long and and then just take whatever support their masters would give them. And who would want to be a slave? Who would want to have anything to do with a slave? Why, those low-life slaves? I just thank you so much, God, that you've allowed me to be a free man. Oh, and, and the prayer goes on, too. It says, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, I thank thee that thou hast not made me a woman. Because, well, just because. I mean, everybody knows about women. (laughs) Who would want to be one of those? (laughs) Every day, every day, growing up, Paul thanked God that he wasn't a Gentile, that he wasn't a slave, that he wasn't a woman. How could you not be prejudiced against those groups of people if you'd been praying a prayer like that all your life? Did Paul continue to pray that prayer after he'd become a Christian? We don't know. Doesn't say. But I want to read you a scripture about how something we know happened in Paul's life that could have been one of the things that God used to overcome that prejudice. The story's found in Acts chapter 16. And if you have a Bible and would like to turn with me, uh, background to the story Paul and his friends have been traveling around. Uh, They've been going out uh, witnessing, ministering to people. Interestingly, for this Pharisee who had become a Christian, every time they went into a new town, the first place they went to look for people to witness to was always the synagogue. And what would they find in the synagogue but Jews, free men, and that's to say men. Free Jewish men were the people they always went out to witness to first. You know, their comfort zone. People just like themselves. Early in this chapter, they met a believer, a young man whose name was Timothy. Uh, But there was a little thing about Timothy. He had been raised by a Jewish mother and a Gentile father, and his father hadn't performed the ceremony for him, and so he wasn't fully recognizable as being Jewish, and so Paul took care of that. 
made sure that Timothy would be known to be Jewish wherever he went because he wanted to associate with free Jewish men. And as this was going on, they traveled through a given region uh, in verse 6, Acts 16, 6, because the Holy Spirit did not let them preach the message in the province of Asia. And it doesn't say why. But I can always imagine, I can almost imagine, the possibility that the Holy Spirit was saying to himself, I've about had it with these people who only go out and preach to free Jewish men. I told them to go out and preach the gospel to everybody. And they're ignoring the Gentiles, they're ignoring the slaves, and they're ignoring the women. So I'm not going to let this mission continue in the direction it's headed, but I'm going to send them off in a different way. So the Holy Spirit didn't let them preach the message in the province of Asia. Now, I know I'm reading between the lines here. You can read it with me or not. That's your choice. When they reached the border of Mysia, they tried to go into the province of Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Nope, none of that. So they traveled right on through Mysia and went to Troas. And that night, Paul had a vision. Now, this is, this is the method that God often used to speak to his people in those days. He had a vision. In the vision, he saw a Macedonian standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, it doesn't say in this vision whether the Macedonian was a Gentile Macedonian or a Jewish Macedonian, because it could have been either one. And I'm guessing it was a Jewish Macedonian in the dream, in the vision, because that's the only kind of Macedonian Paul would have wanted to relate to. And because of what he does when he gets there. So as soon as Paul had this vision, we got ready to leave for Macedonia because we decided that God had called us to preach the good news to the people there. To what people there? Well, to the free Jewish men there, the kind they were used to preaching to, the kind they always went out and preached to. So we left by ship from Troas and sailed straight across to Samothrace and the next day to Neapolis. And from there, we went inland to Philippi, a city of the first district of Macedonia. It's also a Roman colony. We spent several days there. What were they doing during those days? Why weren't they preaching to people? Well, we can figure that out too, reading a little bit between the lines, because verse 13 says, on the Sabbath, so they spent several days there, which was probably all the days since they'd arrived. So maybe they arrived on Sunday or Monday, and there's a few days in there, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and now it's Saturday, the Sabbath. And so on the Sabbath, we went out of the city to the riverside where we thought there would be a place where Jews gathered for prayer. Now, why would they do that? Well, that's easy. They did that because during the several days that they'd been visiting in the city and looking around, they hadn't found any synagogue to preach in. There wasn't any synagogue in Philippi. Why wasn't there a synagogue in Philippi? Well, that's fairly easy, too. To have a synagogue requires ten free Jewish men. That's uh, what's called a minion in Hebrew. And it means the same thing as our English word quorum. You can't have a business meeting unless you have a quorum. You can't have a synagogue unless you have a minion. You have to have ten free Jewish men. In fact, the way the synagogue operates, the minion usually meets first thing in the morning, six o'clock in the morning or so, basically about the time the sun comes up. And the ten Jewish, free Jewish men get together and conduct a little service. 
And that opens the synagogue for the day's business. Now the men can go off and do all the other things they want to, and the rabbi can conduct his business all day because there had been a minion. But if you didn't have the minion, if you couldn't find the ten Jewish men, the synagogue would be closed for the day. Well, it wasn't any synagogue in Philippi because there weren't ten Jewish men in the city. So they couldn't have a synagogue. Well, what do the Jews do in a case where there's no synagogue? Well, at that time, their tradition was to find a place where they could meet and at least say some prayers together, maybe have some fellowship, maybe you know, try to do some of the things that would normally be done in the synagogue when you don't have a synagogue. What do Christians do when there's no church, right? We can't even imagine that because our church is on every street corner in our country. But there are countries where there are no churches, and the handfuls of little Christians that there are in places like that, what do they do? They find a place to meet and get together and you know, try to say some prayers and study the Bible a little bit together. They can't do it officially, but they, you know, they do it the best they can. So that's, that's what they were doing. So we thought, uh, Paul and the other missionaries, thought that there might be a place where Jews gathered for prayer down by the riverside. That seemed like a, a sensible place to go. So they go down to the riverside. What happened? We sat down and talked to the women who gathered there. Oh, my goodness. There weren't any... Jewish men in Philippi. Not only were there not ten for a minion, but there weren't any Jewish men in the whole city of Philippi. The only Jews in the city of Philippi were a little group of women who met down at the riverside. And so Paul was forced by the Holy Spirit to devote his witnessing energy and his missionary efforts to preaching the gospel to women. A group of people he was prejudiced against and had prayed for many years, God, I thank you that you did not make me a woman. Now, his whole mission is going to be to preach to women. In fact, verse 14 tells about the success that he had almost immediately. One of those who heard us was Lydia from Thyatira, who was a dealer in purple cloth. Now, that tells me a couple of other things. Um... One is that she was a free woman. She wasn't a slave. And uh, it says that she was a woman who worshipped God. And so if she wasn't officially a Jewish woman, she was at least a Gentile woman who was trying to practice Judaism and had a lot of friends who were Jewish women. The Lord opened her mind to pay attention to what Paul was saying. Just to show you that I think I'm on the right track about this prejudice thing. Look what she says to Paul and the others in verse 15. After she and the people of her house had been baptized, they accepted Christ. They were baptized. After they'd been baptized, she invited us, come and stay in my house if you have decided that I am a true believer in the Lord. Why would she say that? Was there some doubt in her mind as to whether she thought that Paul would recognize her as really being a believer? If so, where did that doubt come from? Could it not have come from the implied prejudice in Paul's life that made her say, you know, I don't really know if this Pharisee is going to accept me as a Christian, even though... He's preached the gospel to me. 
And even though I've accepted Christ, and even though he's baptized me, I still don't know if he sees me as a Christian. So if you see me as a Christian, come and stay in my house. And she persuaded us to go. Like Paul wasn't really sure he wanted to do it, but eventually she talked him into it. So finally, we've broken down some of Paul's prejudice against women. And one day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by another woman. But this time, it was a slave girl. Oof! Not one of them! Who had an evil spirit that enabled her to predict the future. I knew it. I knew it. She's a slave. She's got an evil spirit. It makes sense. It makes perfect sense. She earned a lot of money for her owners by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God. They announce to you how you can be saved. Now, I just read that in a normal loud voice because I have no way of knowing how to imitate the voice of a girl who's demon-possessed. I don't go to movies like The Exorcist, so I I don't know how they're supposed to sound. But if you don't raise your hand, If you've seen The Exorcist, then you probably know how the demon-possessed girl is supposed to sound in the story. So you you can plug that into your own reading of the scripture. It wasn't pleasant. And she did this for many days until Paul became so upset that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I order you to come out of her. The spirit went out of her at that very moment. Paul had this power from God. Now, as you know, things didn't turn out too well about this. Paul has, I know this is stretching the point a little bit, but Paul has, in effect, witnessed to this slave and led her to a proper relationship with God. I know I'm reading a lot into the text when I say that. And the outcome of it is that he gets thrown in jail. You've heard that story before. We're not going to take time to tell it. They're in the jail. They pray. They sing. There's a huge earthquake. Uh, the jailer thinks that all the prisoners have escaped. He's about to kill himself because he knows that if uh, he gets caught, uh, having let the prisoners loose, that the Roman authorities will come and torture him before they kill him. So rather than allow that to happen, he's going to go ahead and kill himself. Anyway, and Paul says, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. So he calls for light, rushes in, falls trembling at the feet of Paul and Silas, led them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Isn't this every evangelist's dream? Somebody come to you and ask you the question instead of you having to go out and preach to them, which Paul had no idea in his mind of preaching to this jailer. After all, he was a Gentile, wasn't he? He's a Roman soldier. Of course he was a Gentile. Of course Paul wouldn't have even thought about witnessing to him. So... God arranges circumstances that bring him to Paul and put the question right out there in the table in front of him. What must I do to be saved? And thanks to that, we get this classic verse, Acts 16, 31. And if none of the rest of the sermon makes sense to you at all, just listen to this verse, because it's the gospel right here in a nutshell. They answered, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your family. So you can blank out the whole rest of the sermon and you know, just concentrate on this one fact. Dr. Roller told me this morning, if I would believe in Jesus, 
I would be saved. Remember that part. And so he uh, tells them a little bit more. It says they preached the word of the Lord to him, to all the others in the house. That very hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. He and all his family were baptized at once. So obviously he did believe in the Lord Jesus. And obviously he was saved. And so Paul held his nose and baptized him. Because after all, he was a Gentile. Now, what has God done? How has God overcome Paul's prejudice? Well, he's given him the command to go and preach the gospel to all the people groups in the world. And although Paul has been somewhat reluctant to do it, concentrating his efforts primarily on the people groups that he's most comfortable with, God has arranged circumstances to break down that comfort zone and virtually forced him to share his message with people that he wasn't comfortable with. In Paul's case, Gentiles, slaves, and women. In my own case, I had the opportunity to meet a blind man who was a professional musician, played the piano and sang in churches to the glory of God. And I realized that he had a better ministry going than I had. I needed to drop this attitude about blind people not being able to do anything. I met a deaf guy who was a preacher. Now you're going to say, along with me, how can a deaf guy preach? Well, the answer is very simple, and I should have known it already. For example, I had seen Billy Graham on TV preach in Korea. But Billy Graham doesn't speak Korean. So how does he preach in Korea? Well, he preaches. He says, the Bible says... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I can't imitate Billy Graham. And the Korean guy standing next to him translates it into Korean. I hope there's no Koreans here because I did a bad job with that. Little translating, little team effort, and Billy Graham's able to preach in Korea. How did this deaf guy preach? Simple. He preached in sign language. And his friend who could hear and could speak and could also read sign language, interpreted his message, and it was great. I met a guy who was confined to a wheelchair. Well, all the time when he wasn't riding his motorcycle, that is. Now, some of you might be prejudiced against motorcycle riders. It's just a possibility. It's one of those things that's out there in the world. So I'll have to tell you and confess that I am not prejudiced against motorcycle riders. In fact, most of my life I have been a motorcycle rider and I'm more likely to be prejudiced in favor of them than against them. Bikers is what we call ourselves. I don't know what other people call us. So when I moved to Tallahassee, Florida to become the pastor of the Advent Christian Church of Tallahassee, new community for me that I'd never been to before, um, except for the one Sunday when I came down to candidate. Um, as soon as we got established, I 
started trying to find out if there were any other Christian bikers in the community. There is an organization called the Christian Motorcyclists Association, of which I had been a member when I lived in Illinois. And so I got out one of their directories and I started calling around and tried to find out if they had a chapter in Tallahassee and if they had at least some members in Tallahassee. And it finally narrowed it down to the fact that there was one known member of the Christian Motorcyclists Association in Tallahassee, Florida, and his name was Doug Miller. So I called him up on the phone. I said, hi, Doug. My name is John Roller. I've recently moved to this community. I, too, am a member of the Christian Motorcyclists Association. I don't see any evidence that there's a chapter in this community, but maybe the two of us could get together sometime. I would love to do that, Doug said. My house is difficult to find. Why don't we meet at such and such a gas station? Uh, and uh, well, you know, you can follow me home. So naturally, I went there on my motorcycle. And you know, if you're going out to meet another, you know, Christian motorcyclist, you don't go in your car. <laughs> I'm talking about real bikers. I was a real biker. There are several different kinds of bikers, <laughs> and uh, I was a wannabe real biker. Um, and so I did. I got on my bike and put my helmet on. I rode my motorcycle out to this gas station and. As I was waiting in the parking lot, here come a motorcycle, happened to have a sidecar with it, and I said, that's cool, and never had a sidecar before. Nice bike, guy with a helmet, and everything like that, waved at me, and so I said, obviously this is my friend, so I followed him back to his home. When we got there, uh, he took his helmet off, he sat it down on the, on the handlebars, he reached over into the sidecar, and he pulled out a collapsible wheelchair, unfolded it unbuckled his feet from the foot pegs of the motorcycle, picked his legs up, and thumped himself down bottom first into the, into the wheelchair and wheeled himself into the house. I stood there for a couple of minutes with my mouth hanging open, walked in after him, and other than having conversed on the telephone to arrange this meeting, only one word could come out of my mouth. Explain. And Doug Miller told me how he had once upon a time uh, been a motorcycle racer. And uh, he'd, you know, walked and and talked just like everybody else. But uh, he'd come to work one day. And uh, his new girlfriend's ex-boyfriend was one of these people who, uh, the expression nowadays is, went postal. He came into the workplace there and he had a gun and he started shooting, shooting, shooting in every direction. And Doug woke up in the hospital. And he asked the doctor, will I be able to race motorcycles again? And the doctor literally laughed and said, no, Doug, you don't have any legs. We had to remove them both. And not only that, but you only have one good eye. The other one's been replaced with glass. So you'll never, you'll never ride a motorcycle again, let alone race. And Doug said, oh, yeah? He said, I'll bet they teach how to uh, build sidecars in the occupational therapy wing of this hospital. I'll just build me a sidecar, attach it to the motorcycle so it won't tip over when I come to a stop, and I'll be able to put my wheelchair in the sidecar. That's exactly what he did. Doug rode his motorcycle home from the hospital when he got out (laughs) with his uh, plastic legs and glass eye 
And he did indeed go back to racing motorcycles with a sidecar, and sometimes he won. Um, in fact, when I tried to follow him on the interstate, that worked so poorly that I asked him to follow me next time we went somewhere <laughs> together. And so I learned that blind people can play the piano and sing, that deaf people can preach the gospel to crowds, and that a guy with no legs can race motorcycles. And I should quit deciding ahead of time that I know what people can't do based on some little factoid or other that I happen to know about them. That's how God overcame prejudice. God overcame Paul's prejudice by sending him out to witness to people he wasn't comfortable with. Later on in my time in Tallahassee, I had the opportunity to witness to a man who was in worse shape than Doug. He was quadriplegic. He couldn't feel any part of his body from his neck down, let alone control it or move it. It was confined totally to a wheelchair that somebody else had to push around. He wasn't a Christian. But because God had broken down my prejudice... I was able to see him as a person who needed to hear the gospel. And I patiently visited him day after day and week after week for several months before he finally made a decision to accept Christ as his Savior. We literally couldn't baptize him. Besides being quadriplegic, he also had to wear a colostomy bag, and so he couldn't be submerged in water, which was the form of baptism that our church required. So we, we reached into some little clause somewhere deep in the back of the Constitution and we accepted into membership a Presbyterian who had been sprinkled as an infant many years before he'd accepted Christ as his Savior. And that was good enough for the Advent Christian Church of Tallahassee. And so it had to do because it was all we could do. He, in fact, later became the treasurer of the church, and I don't have time this morning to explain to you the mechanics and physics of how a quadriplegic can take care of the church's money, but he did. God can do anything. Not only can he enable people who have handicaps of various kinds to function more than successfully in society, but he can also enable prejudiced people to set that aside long enough to fulfill the mandate that he's given to us to witness to people of all people groups, including those that we're prejudiced against. We're going to conclude with hymn number 630.